0: The Bible is a fascinating book. And yet, the more we study it, the more we learn that God never intended to spoon-feed us with His Word. Remember what He said in 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 16, in which Peter said that in the Scriptures there are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. He's given us His Word, but He expects us to work at it, to work with it, to study it, to learn it. And so as we consider that, we're not surprised that we can look in, even here, just in Franklin, and find numerous churches, many of which claim to do nothing but follow the Bible, and yet each of them teaching different things. we've learned that it takes more than just saying that we follow the proper standard. We've also got to follow the standard properly. And in lessons past, we've learned that that means being able to rightly divide between the two covenants. We've learned that it means we've got to know the simple rules for studying our Bible. We've learned about the different forms of literature in which God used in the Scripture. We've learned about how to establish Bible authority from the Word of God. If we're going to learn how to use this standard properly, one other aspect of God's Word that we need to understand is God's use of figures of speech. As we look at the Scripture, we find out that God uses language in many colorful and varied ways. He does not always just speak just plainly. He uses figurative language and figures of speech. But what does that mean? When we consider the idea of figurative speech and figurative language, we need to understand that figures of speech are not just speculative uses of language bereft of meaning. A figure of speech is not a lie, it's not a mistake. A figure of speech is something that is used and defined by rules and is used for a very specific purpose. According to Bullinger, in his book, Figures of Speech Used in the Bible, and if you get one of the outlines, and as we go through this lesson today, all of the definitions come from that book. It's a very thick book. And if you want to learn more about figures of speech, I encourage you to get the book. But it helps us understand God's Word and how He uses it. But his definition is a figure. It's simply a word or sentence thrown into a peculiar form. Different from its original or simplest meaning or use. When we're talking about figurative speech, figurative language, we recognize that this is just using the words we always use, but using them differently from normal. We're not talking about anything amazing. We're just talking about being a little bit different. That's it. And God does that sometimes. He uses these figures of speech. But we may ask ourselves, why? Why? Before we do that, allow me to use some illustrations. Somebody said a few minutes ago, boy, you're having trouble getting your ducks in a row this morning. I sure am. I'm struggling this morning, but we're going to make it through this, alright? We use figures of speech all the time. Sports announcer says he fired that pitch like a bullet. Guess what that is? That's a figure of speech. He says he tossed a Hail Mary into the end zone. That's a figure of speech. Whenever we talk about our dry ground that drank up the rain, that's a figure of speech. Figurative language. You remember when Muhammad Ali said, I float like a butterfly, sting like a bee? Your hands can't hit what your eyes can't see? That was figures of speech. Figurative language. We use it all the time. And so does God. But why? Well, reason number one that we need to recognize and understand is not to weaken or cheapen the Scriptures. Today, when folks talk about figurative language, they think that means that the Bible means nothing. That that is not the case. In fact, Mr. Bullinger has this statement in the introduction of his book. He says, Whereas today, figurative language is ignorantly spoken of as though it made less of the meaning and deprived the words of their power and force, implying that its meaning is weakened, or that it has quite a different meaning, or that it has no meaning at all. But the very opposite is the case. When somebody says, Oh, that passage is figurative. They're not saying that it has no meaning. They're not saying that the meaning doesn't matter. They're saying that in order to understand the very important meaning of this passage, we've got to understand that God was using speech here differently from the norm. That's all they're saying. Why would God do that? Number one, because we do that. We use figures of speech. And it stands to reason that if God is going to provide a communication to us, He's going to do it in the same way that we communicate with one another. But I think there's other more important reasons than this. The second reason, because it adds depth and color and intensity to our reading of Scripture. By the way, did you notice that I just used figurative language here? It adds depth, color, and intensity. Can you imagine in Psalm 51 and verse 7? In Psalm 51 and verse 7, David could have said, God, please forgive me and help me to be happy again. But how drab is that compared to what He actually said in Psalm 51 and verse 7? Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. You see the difference? God forgive me and help me to be happy. That's kind of boring, isn't it? But wash me with hyssop. Cleanse me and I'll be whiter than snow. Cause the bones which you have broken to rejoice. Rejoice. Now that, that's colorful. That's intense. That's depth. And so God used figurative language because it provides that. Number three, God provides figurative language to emphasize the message and to attract attention. We can read the Bible and we can read it dutifully. But if God never used figures of speech, we'd probably just work our way through it with the same inattentive reading that we provide with the newspaper every day. But when he throws in a figure of speech, when we see something that's just a little bit different, it's like that speed bump that causes us to wake up and say, what's going on here? I'll tell you what, driven on lots of trips. And of course, I'm driving, Marita's over in the passenger seat, we've got three kids in the back. If I'm lucky, they're all four asleep. We're driving along. If they're unlucky, guess what I do? I fall asleep. What happens? Everybody's, everybody's out. Everybody's asleep. Everything's just moving along. Normally, we go off to the side of the road and they put those wonderful little bumps there so that you'll wake up because it attracts our attention. And they can all be asleep, but we hit those bumps and Rita comes unglued out of her seat. Ah! Why? Because here's something different. It's not the norm. It attracts our attention. It wakes us up. That's exactly what a figure of speech does. As we come to it in the Word of God, it's like those bumps. It wakes us up. It causes say, "What's going on here?" Think about Matthew chapter 16 and verse 25. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 25, if Jesus had said to us, "All right, guys, any of you who focuses on what you want and what you desire and what you think is important, you're going to go to hell." But only those who focus on what I want and what I desire and I think is important will go to heaven. Well, we'd have read that and we'd have read it beautifully, but probably inattentively We'd have just shot right through it. But instead, in Matthew 16 and verse 25, Jesus said this, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the first thought that we get to that is, what on earth does that mean? I lose my life, I save it, I save it, I find what? It's a little bit confusing, isn't it? It causes us to wake up and it attracts our attention. It emphasizes the message because in order to understand this, we've got to work a little bit harder at it. And that's exactly why God provided figurative language and figures of speech in the Scripture because it causes us to wake up and to dig to work at studying God's Word. Reason number four, this is one that God specifically says in His Word, To make a distinction between the disciples and the world. Flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10, the disciples came and said to Him, that's Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Of course, we've learned in a previous lesson that a parable is a particular genre of literature which employs figurative language. So why are you using this figurative language? Why don't you just tell them straight exactly what you mean, Lord? Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 10 and verse 11. "...To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him." Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You'll keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, their eyes would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return. And I would heal them. But blessed are you because, blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. So we're making a distinction. There are some who are closing their eyes, they're allowing their ears to become dull. They're hearing the gospel, but they're not understanding it. And God just basically says, I've done it this way because I know this will make a distinction between those who are willing to study and work and learn the Word of God. And those who aren't. And those who aren't willing to work at it, what they have will be lost by the wayside. But those who are willing to open their eyes and their ears and their hearts to God's Word and work at it and understand it, you'll be able to see. That's why, He says, I'm speaking in parables. That's why God uses figurative language. If we're going to understand the Word, we've got to understand this. I'm not saying that everything in the Bible is figurative. And I'm not saying that we're allowed to pass on things by just saying, oh, that's figurative. We can't take things that are literal and pass them off as figurative. But at the same time, we can't destroy the meaning of God's figures of speech by trying to claim that everything is literal, because it's just not. I'd like for you to consider some examples of figures of speech and as we go through this, I'm going to provide examples of how we use them as well, and then also how the Bible uses them. Obviously, we don't have time to go from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and look at all the figures of speech. And in fact, we don't have time to look at all the kinds of figures of speech. If you get Bullinger's book, he says he has over 200 different kinds of figures of speech. And some of those have 30 to 40 varieties. Now, if y'all want to stay for that, I can go get the book and we can start reading. Anybody want to do that? I didn't think so. But we're going to look at some of the more common ones, some ones that we'll come up against, and some ones that actually cause problems and that really matter that we need to understand. Otherwise, we're going to be dealing with error and false teaching. The very first one that we recognize is probably the one that's that we most easily recognize, but is the most difficult. It's just symbol. Now, a symbol is a material object substituted for a moral or spiritual truth. Today, the way we use symbol or symbolism often is very broad. We need to understand, at least for this context, that we not allow the word symbol or symbolism just to equal figurative language. This is a very specific kind of figure of speech. It's when we take one object and we're talking about this one object, but actually we mean something else. Now, this is probably one of the most difficult figures of speech to understand. The reason is is that so many symbols are culturally based. Because a particular culture in a particular time have been able to see a connection between two objects, they'll allow one to symbolize the other. And if we were in their culture, we'd see it readily. But because we are separated from the Bible culture by 2,000 years and half a globe, we don't always see them very well. Fortunately for us, some of them are explained. Others, we have to work a little bit harder. But nevertheless, the Bible does use symbols. One of the places it most often uses symbols and the parables, just as we just mentioned in Matthew chapter 13. For instance, in Luke 8, also the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow his seed. Jesus told the story about a farmer. He's sowing seed, and some goes along the roadside, some of it goes on rocky soil. Some of it's eaten up by the birds. Some of it goes into the ground and produces fruit. What an interesting story. But was that story really about farming? Jesus explained to us, no, He was using symbolism. Because in Luke 8 and verse 11, He says, the seed is the Word of God. And then He goes on and He talks about what each of the different grounds represented. Another passage we might look at is in John chapter 2 and verse 19. Jesus told the folks there, He said, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. Even the disciples didn't understand what He was talking about. But the text tells us in John chapter 2 and verse 21, He was speaking of the temple of His body. He was using symbolism. It was a symbol. They were standing there beside the temple and He said, destroy the temple in three days, I'll raise it up. But He was really talking about His body. Interestingly, the text there tells us that even the disciples didn't understand what He meant until after His resurrection. And so we recognize that symbols are sometimes difficult. We have to work at them. But God uses them, and we need to work to understand them. Secondly, probably ones that we're most commonly familiar with because we learn them in school. Metaphor and simile. A metaphor is a declaration that one thing is another, A simile is a declaration that one thing resembles another. When you were in your elementary grammar classes, you were informed that what these figures of speech do is they relate two separate objects. But simile, the difference between a metaphor, simile always uses like or as. We use these all the time. For instance, as a metaphor, we might say, watch out for that guy, he's a real snake. Now, is he really a snake? No, of course not. But we're saying he's slippery and slimy. you got to be careful with him. We even tried to intensify the figure because we said he's a real snake. But we didn't mean real and we didn't mean snake. We were just talking about the kind of person he is. Simile. remember when Muhammad Ali said, I float like a butterfly, I sting like a bee? That's simile. We use these things all the time. In the Scripture... We find metaphors used. In Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 15, when Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, and he goes on to describe them, and he says, You are the light of the world. These are metaphors. He's not saying that we're literally salt, he's not saying that we're literally light, and we're supposed to be shining and incandescent. He's describing what he expects from us using a metaphor. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 32, the Pharisees came to him and said something about Herod, and Jesus said, You go tell that fox and then explain what he wanted them to go tell him. That's a metaphor. He's not saying that Herod is really a fox, but he's describing the kind of person Herod is by using a figure of speech. A metaphor. Simile. A declaration that something resembles another used in Scripture. In Psalm 1 and verse 3, as it talks about the righteous man who doesn't sit in the seat of the ungodly or walk in the way of the scornful. He says that He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. That's a figure of speech. We're not going to be able to become doves. We're not going to be able to become serpents. We're not going to really be sheep, but we are to be like them. It's a simile. Now, some folks, when we start talking about this, say, this is really confusing. Why on earth are we wasting our time talking about these things? I'll tell you why. Because in some passages, we find this really matters. Because some folks misunderstand things, and the reason they misunderstand it is because they don't understand figures of speech. For instance, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and said, take, eat, this is my body, and He did, and he had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. Very common false doctrine in our world today that says that this Lord's Supper that we just took, that bread was really his flesh, and that fruit of the vine was really his blood. And they'll go to this one, and you know what they'll say? Why, it says it's. Yes, but Jesus also said, We are the light of the world, and we are salt. What is it? It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. The Bible tells us God is our rock. Is He really a hunk of granite up in the sky? Absolutely not. It's a metaphor. When He said, this is my body, this is my blood, it was a figure of speech. A metaphor. He's telling us that that's what we're supposed to be remembering. That's what it represents when we participate in the Lord's Supper. This is important that we understand this. Otherwise, we'll misunderstand the Scripture. Another example. Hyperbole hyperbole is when more is said than is literally meant. If you don't like to remember the fancy words for these, you could just call this one exaggeration. It's stating the case greater than it actually is in order to drive home a point, in order to attract our attention and realize how important this is. It's exaggerated more than is meant is said. For instance, when Muhammad Ali said, your hands can't hit what your eyes can't see, Could the boxer not really see him? Of course he could see him. What he was trying to point out was, though, I move so fast, you can't see me. And so you ain't going to hit me. It's a figure of speech. We use these kind of things all the time. The Bible uses it as well. We can look in the Scripture we find in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his brother and sister, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Did Jesus really mean we're supposed to hate these people? We know that conflicts with all that the Scripture talks about. What's going on here? It's a figure of speech. It's an exaggeration in order to drive home a point. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29, He says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. Now here's the thing, guys. If this is literal, then each one of us ought to be blinded because I know every single one of us, especially men, your right eye has caused you to stumble. Almost all of us, right? Why haven't we ripped our eyes out and thrown them from us? Because we understand. We understand. That Jesus wasn't speaking literally. It's a figure of speech. It's a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to drive home the point. That doesn't make this passage lose its meaning, does it? That doesn't mean that if something causes us offense, we don't have to do anything about it. No. It drives it home, though, how very important it is for us to make sure we don't allow anything to cause us to stumble. I'll tell you why this is important. Because some folks are going to go to Psalm 51 and verse 5. And they're going to say, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And they're going to say, see, original sin. We're born this way. We're just absolutely born sinners. But you read that psalm, and what you'll find is that throughout that entire psalm, David is using figurative language. That's the same psalm we went to a few minutes ago where he said, Wash me with hyssop. Cleanse me and I'll be whiter than snow. Was David really going to be whiter than snow? We're talking about a Hebrew. A Middle Easter. Have you ever seen somebody from the Middle East whiter than snow? He's using exaggeration and hyperbole throughout this entire song. He says, against you and you only I have sinned. Is that true? Absolutely not. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against his own body. He had sinned against the people of God. He had sinned against the Gentiles even. What was happening? He's using figurative language. When he says, in sin my mother conceived me, he's not saying I was born a sinner. What he's saying is, look at how rotten I am and how much I need forgiveness. And he's driving that home, exaggerating the reality of the case in order to demonstrate a spiritual point. He's using hyperbole, a figure of speech. And if we don't understand that, we're not going to understand the Scripture. We're not going to be able to use the standard properly. Another example is personification. Things represented as persons. Let me read something a little bit more in depth to you regarding this one as we consider personification. Bullinger also explains that it's a figure by which things are represented or spoken of as persons, or by which we attribute intelligence by words or actions to inanimate objects or abstract ideas. If we take something that's not a person, something that can't think, that can't reason, that's not intelligent, or something that's not a human, and we provide it with human-like characteristics. For instance, earlier when we talked about our dry ground that drank up the rain... Did the ground really drink the rain? No. The water soaked into the ground. That would be literal. But instead we say, because we're adding color and depth and intensity to our speech, it drank that rain right up. Well, the Bible uses this kind of figurative language all the time. We can look in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 20. The Scripture says, Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. Wisdom is an abstract idea. It's not a person. I tell you. The Greeks, they thought wisdom was a person. They had a goddess of wisdom. And when they said wisdom does, does this, they were talking about the goddess. Is that what proverbialist is saying? That there's some woman out there who embodies wisdom and she's crying in the streets? Absolutely not. It's personification. It's applying to something that is inanimate, that's an abstract idea, the qualities of humanhood. When God said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Interestingly, you go on another verse. He said that the ground opened its mouth and received your brother's blood. Both of those are personification, figurative speech. God uses it all the time. We've got to understand that. Another example. Metonymy. The change of one noun for another related noun. This is one that is used over and over again. This comes from meta, which means change, and nomos, which means name. And so if you want to remember this, it just means to change the name. It's a form of symbolism where one thing is mentioned, but it's actually referring to another. Now, this sounds confusing. We say to ourselves, how on earth am I supposed to figure this out? And you realize we use it all the time. You ever heard anybody say the pen is mightier than the sword? You ever heard that? Are they saying that I can hold my pen, which I accidentally left at home this morning, and you can hold your sword and we can go to town and I'm going to whoop you with it? Is that what he's saying? No, of course not. What's he saying? He's saying that we're going to accomplish more to change the world by writing than by fighting. He says the pen is mightier than the sword, but he's actually talking about writing and books and pamphlets and letters. Mightier than the sword, but he's actually talking about violence and fighting. What did he do? Change the name. Two related objects, and he changed the name. The Bible does this all the time. We can find... In Luke chapter 16 and verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Keep in mind, this is when the rich man and Lazarus were in Hades. And the rich man is in torments and Lazarus is in paradise. And the rich man is wanting to have his brothers warned about what's going to come. And he said, send Lazarus back from the dead, let him go talk to them. And Abraham said, no, it doesn't work that way. He said, aside from that, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But wait a minute, where were Moses and the prophets? Were they on the earth at this time when Luke 16 was written? No. Moses and the prophets weren't there. They were dead. They were also in Hades. What's he mean? He's talking about their writings, isn't he? You see, metonymy, changing the name. He says Moses and the prophets. What he means is they have the books that Moses and the prophets wrote. They need to listen to them. Metonymy. We find in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. But He's not just talking about our bodies. He's talking about our lives. He's talking about what we do with our bodies, our actions and our mindset. That's metonymy, changing the name. It's not just something we do with our physical body. In fact, the Scripture says it's not about just what we do with our physical body. We can do all kinds of things with our physical body and still not be doing what God wants. And so here He's not just talking about physical things. He's talking about the entirety of our lives. But he says body to refer to that. It's called metonymy. I'll tell you one of the places where we need to be careful with this, where we need to recognize that, that folks are misuse it is in 1 John 4.1. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now we've heard folks today say, oh, we're testing the spirits. And they have no idea what this passage is talking about. Because they think that this passage is talking about actually having spiritual beings that are in and around us here, and we've got to test them. And we've got to figure out how to do that. But notice what he says. He's actually talking about false prophets. How is this metonymy? Because all the prophets were claiming to receive revelation from the Spirit. And so when a false prophet comes in, what John is telling us, you've got to test the Spirit. Make sure that what they're saying is really coming from the Spirit, because a lot of them are false. How do we test the spirits then? Not by going through some type of miraculous event. We test the spirits by listening to what the prophet says and seeing if it corresponds with the Word of God. Very simply. But this is metonymy. He says test the spirits, but he's not really referring to spirits as in ghosts. He's referring to the prophecy and the teaching of those who claim to be prophets. Another example. Oxymoron. A wise saying that seems to be foolish. This is accomplished by putting together two ideas that seem to be opposed to one another, that just don't make sense. On the surface, we think that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But a lot of times when we think about it for a while, we realize, hey, that's pretty pretty wise. For instance, we might tell somebody, you know, you know what you need to do with that person? You need to kill them with kindness. You ever heard that? Is it kind to kill people? No, of course not. If we're... You can't be kind and kill. How do we say this? Well, we know what we mean. We're saying we're just overwhelming them. But see, these two things don't go together, but it's really wise when we think about it. Tough love. Boy, the first time you heard tough love, you thought, what on earth is tough love? But then when you thought about it, you realized, hey, okay, I get it. Love needs to be tough sometimes, and it's still love. See, that's an oxymoron. We move on and we find in the Scripture where these are used. We find in Matthew 16:25, the one we referred to earlier, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Now, how does that go together? How can you lose it and save it at the same time? That's a contradiction. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How can I lose it and find it at the same time? Those are contradictions on the surface. That sounds ridiculous. What on earth does that mean? Well, we know, having studied it, that his point is that when I quit worrying about saving my life and start focusing on serving the Lord, that's when I save it. And when I give up my life in order to accomplish God's will, that's when I find real life. And then we find in Romans chapter 12, and verse 1, presents your bodies. And remember we said this, where he used bodies, that was metonymy, but a living sacrifice. If it's a sacrifice, what would you do to it? You killed it, right? That's what we do with sacrifices. We kill them. But he says, be a living sacrifice. How does that go together? It's an oxymoron. At, on the surface, it doesn't make sense, but when we think about it, we understand. I'm still alive. It's like Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's a living sacrifice, and we understand that. Ellipsis. This is our last one, by the way, for today. Ellipsis. The figure is a peculiar form given to a passage when a word or words are omitted, words which are necessary for the grammar but are not necessary for the sense. Now, we use this all the time. Folks, we're not talking about adding to the Word of God. We're talking about the fact that sometimes we say things and we leave words out. Let me give you an example. I don't know how many times I'm in a room with Tessa. And Tessa is the only one that's in that room with me. And I will say, go clean your room. Now, I left out a word there. I left out the subject of that sentence. With just that sentence alone, you've got to wonder, who's supposed to go clean their room? Tessa has become smart enough to pick up on that. You know what she says back to me every time? She looks at me and she says, Me? Which is also an ellipsis. She's left words out. My typical response is, No, I'm talking to the person next to you. Of course I'm talking to you. You're the only one in here. Because the context tells us that what I really meant was, Tessa, go clean your room. And of course the context said that she was asking me, Are you talking to me? We understand that. We leave words out because they're not necessary at times but sometimes we go back to the Scripture, this causes us a little trouble. This happens a lot. There's all kinds of variations on this, but let's look at a couple of the most important. In Matthew 6, 19-20, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And in Matthew 10, verse 34, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, this is confusing. In Matthew 6, 19-20, is He telling us that we're not allowed to have anything in a bank account? Is He telling us that we're not allowed to own anything, not even the clothes on our back? No, He's not. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, is Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring peace at all. I came just to bring violence. No, He's not. What's happening here? He's left some words out that are understood by the context of the Scripture. What He was actually saying in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 through 20 is don't merely store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but primarily store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. We're not adding to the Word of God, brethren, when we say this. We're just demonstrating this is a figure of speech that God used. We use it all the time. God used it. And this is what he meant. He's saying, don't focus on earthly treasures. He's not saying we can't have any at all. He's saying that's not the important thing. Primarily, you need to focus on treasures in heaven. And he's saying, I didn't come to bring peace only. We know he came to bring peace. In fact, in our Bible class, we read several prophets that talked about him bringing peace. But he said, I also came to bring a sword. In other words, we need to recognize that it's not always going to be peace there's going to be some fighting, there's going to be some arguing, there's going to be people that don't like it, and there's going to be trouble that comes from the gospel. I'll show you a place where this really is important that we understand this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, there's lots of folks that will go to this passage and say, see, baptism is necessary for salvation because God didn't send Paul to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be void. But here's the thing, if Paul wasn't supposed to baptize, if that's really what he means here, that not, it's not about baptism, then why? Why in chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, did he baptize folks? In First Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. He did do some baptizing. He was supposed to be doing some baptizing. What's his point here then? Why would he do something that God didn't send him to do? Because his point is not that he wasn't supposed to baptize. His point is is that God had an emphasis for him. He said, Christ didn't send me merely to baptize, but primarily to preach the gospel. My job is preaching the gospel. It didn't matter who baptized the folks. Paul could let anybody baptize them, but if he sat back and didn't do any teaching, now he'd have a problem. He didn't have to baptize anybody at any time. Somebody had to. But he said, it doesn't have to be me. But see, it's an ellipsis. He's left out words that are understood by the context. And we need to recognize and understand that. Well, brethren, here we are again at the end of another one of these sermons that I know is not just one of those, wow, exciting, grab you by the edge of your seats, and man, we just can't wait to hear more. By the time we got to ellipsis, you are probably thinking to yourself, how many more of these are we going to be looking at? I know. But brethren, we've got to understand these things. Otherwise, we're not going to understand the Word of God. We have to recognize how God uses language. Otherwise, we're never going to understand this book. Once again, allow me to repeat. I'm not saying that everything in the Bible is figurative. I'm not saying that at all. We speak literally. God spoke to us literally. But we've got to learn to distinguish how God is speaking. And we're not allowed to bypass the things that are literal by just saying, Oh, that's figurative. But at the same time, we can't miss the meaning of the figures of speech God uses by saying, oh, God always speaks literally. We just can't do that. We've got to get in, we've got to dig, we've got to study. And there's only one way to accomplish this. I don't believe that there's any sermon that I could preach that by the time we're done, you'll be able to say, all right, I've got it down. I know exactly how to determine what's literal and what's a figure of speech. I don't think I can do it. The only way you can learn that is by getting into it and studying it and reading it and putting it all within the Bible context. That's what you have to do.